really no words to describe what it feels like to have someone you love just disappear. From that very first second when you find out and you feel the pain, the fear, the disbelief, you know on some level that your life will just never be the same. On the day that my mother vanished, I became the daughter of that missing woman. And really, any other role that I've held has been secondary. Because in my heart, I can't let anything interfere in my search for her. I can't, and I won't, ever stop looking. On Highway 11 northbound, just as you leave the city of North Bay, Ontario, Canada, heading for places like New Liskard or Timmins, there existed for decades a facility called the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital. The hospital was huge, housing as many as 1,100 residents at a time in its day. It was surrounded by lovely expanses of lawn and trees and backed onto a forest. It was eventually closed in 2011 when the newly formed Northeast Mental Health Center and the North Bay District Hospital merged in a new location on Highway 17 West in North Bay. The North Bay Psychiatric Hospital was demolished in 2013. I can only imagine that the families who brought relatives to stay there during the many years it was in operation found the exterior setting to be peaceful in many respects. With a troubled family member dealing with a mental health crisis or a long-time serious mental health issue, I imagine many families breathed a sigh of relief on arrival, feeling certain that their loved one would be fed, cared for, and above all, safe. But for more than 55 years, families have been asking what happened to their loved ones when they brought them into the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital and they just disappeared. Between the years of 1966 and 2010, while they were all residents of the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital, Philippe Guérin, Norman Welsh, Don Carice, Russell Hoffert, Terry Zubko, and Glenn Wesley just vanished. In late 2020, our team started looking into their cases, and our listeners really helped out. Because of the tips and information you've provided, we had potential sightings of a number of the missing. And you helped us to gather a lot of information about the disappearances themselves. But we also heard from many former patients and current and former employees of the hospital. And our own researchers took a deep look into the dark side of the hospital's history, a side we never could have imagined existed. I'm Ellen White, and you are listening to Whereabouts Unknown. In today's episode, Betrayed Trust, the final chapter, we look at the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital and the suicides, murders, abuses by staff, and finally, the cases of the six people who disappeared while patients there. At this time, we would like to warn our listeners that this podcast contains mention of violence and missing Indigenous people. It may be triggering for some. This podcast is not suitable for children. So psychiatric hospitals just aren't fun places to be. By their nature, they are institutional settings and every institution, especially one the size of this hospital, brings a routine to the lives of those who live there. Despite attempts made by kind and caring staff, residents were often frustrated by boredom and the sameness of the environment. Some staff members devoted their work days to providing vital care for the patients, 
but they also spent quality time with them, learning about their families and listening to their jokes and stories. One patient relayed to us how her care nurses brought her in Chinese food when she struggled to eat and even took her to their own homes for home-cooked meals. The kindness and compassion displayed by many people who worked at the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital made an otherwise terrifying and bleak stay a tolerable one. But let's look at the behavior of some staff members who it seems didn't feel they needed to reach that standard of care or anything close to it. Our researchers uncovered documents pertaining to hearings held by the Discipline Committee of the College of Nurses of Ontario. Let's look at just a couple of those today that concern employees of the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital. In 1999, the committee undertook a hearing in regard to the behavior of an employee that we'll call IH. The committee was alleging that IH had failed to meet the standards of practice for his profession. This was in regard to a number of incidents involving a number of different patients at the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital. Today, we are going to look at only the incidents that IH admitted to. So here goes. In 1994, IH, then a registered nurse at this hospital, squeezed his arm around a patient's neck, causing the patient to fall to the floor. In 1996, two years later, he tells a patient to shut the F up. And I'm toning the profanity down here, but IH didn't when he was addressing this and other vulnerable patients. He also placed his hands on a patient's throat and neck. About six months later, in 1997, this registered nurse cupped his hands over a patient's mouth and nose. He struck a patient with his hand. He placed his forearm against a patient's throat, and he called the patient a piece of S. He also choked a patient with his hands around the patient's throat and grabbed and twisted his arm. When a patient was struggling to rise from his wheelchair, I.H. slapped the patient on his forehead and said, sit down, a-hole, and he hit a patient on the head with his hand. Now let's look at another employee of the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital, a registered practical nurse that we'll call TB. TB is also called before the Discipline Committee of the College of Nurses of Ontario. And once again, we are only going to look at the allegations that he has admitted to. In 1995, while working in Unit 3B, which is the psychogeriatric ward, housing patients with both physical and psychological illnesses, TB tilts a patient's jerry chair, a special kind of wheelchair meant for people who aren't well enough to use a regular one, so that the patient is lying almost flat on the floor, leaving him there while the patient panics. In 1996, he tells a patient, and again, we are going to tone down the language he actually used, to shut the F up. He goes on to tell the patient that he is pretty stupid and grabs the patient's neck with his hands. And in 1997, maybe because he's been getting away with it for a couple of years, or maybe it's just that more and more people are reporting him, but the complaints against registered practical nurse TB really seem to escalate. During the winter of 1997, he places a disabled patient that he is upset with in an isolation room, dressed only in a thin gown. 
He then leaves the window to this room wide open, allowing in cold wind and snow. That patient is saved only by the intervention of another staff member. And also in 1997, he terrorizes a patient by telling him that he is going to call the police and report falsely that the patient has had sex with a little girl. On occasion, he tells the patient that the police are there for him, terrifying the patient. They aren't, but TB tells the patient that. And he tells this same patient that if he takes his medication, he will call the police and tell them that the patient did not have sex with a little girl. So North Bay Psychiatric Hospital employees IH and TB admit to what you've heard so far. Their punishment? It looks like they both had nine-month suspensions, during which time they were to take an anger management class and watch a single video about abuse. And we aren't able to find any information about any criminal charges being laid against either of them. It certainly wasn't all sunshine and roses at the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital, and sometimes patients decided that they needed to get away by any means. Some of them crafted elaborate plans to do so. Let's look at patient Harry Spackow's horrific attempt to leave the hospital in 1992. So Harry Spackow is a very troubled soul who kills his mother with a hammer in 1985. He is convicted of second-degree murder. Harry is sent to the Oak Ridge Division of the Penetanguishene Mental Health Center in Penetanguishene, Ontario, Canada. Despite the fact that he has been diagnosed with a number of different mental health issues, Harry does pretty well there. In 1991, he is sent to a medium security facility, the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital. Now, Harry isn't happy there. And to be fair to the hospital, it looks like Harry just doesn't want to be confined to any institution that houses psychiatric patients. He formulates a plan to leave the hospital, deciding that he would rather live out his days in a penitentiary instead. Harry decides to kill a fellow patient, anyone, he doesn't really care who, and then tell everyone about it so that he can once again be charged with murder, and he hopes this time be sent to a penitentiary. He chooses another patient who he decides is unimportant and lures this man down to the tunnels beneath the hospital by promising him a cigarette. The unsuspecting man follows Harry into the depths of the hospital where Harry strangles him and then stands on his neck for a full five minutes. He then goes back upstairs where it seems that staff may not have even noted his absence let alone that of the now-deceased patient who went with him. Harry starts to give away his belongings to other patients, telling them that he won't need them any longer as he's moving to the penitentiary. He also tells anyone that will listen that he's killed another patient whose body can be found in the hospital's tunnels. One of the other patients then alerts a staff member, and Harry is once again charged with murder and sent back to the Oak Ridge Division of the Penetanguishene Mental Health Center. And also in another horrific murder at the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital, 56-year-old Rita Quinlan lost her life when she was strangled to death by fellow patient, 22-year-old Jolene Cross. Both women had been admitted to the hospital just the month before. 
Now, suicides sadly are not unheard of in any psychiatric hospital. And today we want to look at a suicide involving a patient of the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital, Denis Blais. So Denis Blais is an educated man, a teacher who holds a master's degree. He struggles with some serious mental health issues throughout his adult life. Eventually, Denis is admitted to the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital and he does pretty well there. So he is allowed to have some unsupervised trips out into the community. On one of those trips, on April 5th, 2002, Denis suffers a near-fatal overdose. But it seems that despite this overdose, a review board discharges him from the hospital just six days later, on April the 11th, 2002. Denis comes back to the hospital as a patient once again in August of that year after uh, what is believed to have been a suicide attempt. He suffers serious self-inflicted cuts to his throat, left wrist, right ankle, and right thigh. On June 25th, 2003, Denis is out on unsupervised grounds privileges, where he gets to enjoy the outdoors unescorted for a two-hour period before he must return. He is also required to sign in at the one-hour mark. But Denis, it seems, doesn't sign in and he doesn't return. His absence is finally noted some two hours later. North Bay police respond and a search commences. Unfortunately, a canine unit, which would likely have been helpful, is not available at this time. The North Bay Police Service doesn't have their own, and they need to borrow one from the OPP, and the OPP dogs were all in use. Denis Blais is finally found after 27 hours on an adjoining property belonging to a block and gravel company. He has taken his own life. At the coroner's inquest called into his death, some of his caregivers were called to testify. And one of them said that they felt his talk of suicide was just a ploy and that he liked to be the focus of attention. Despite the fact that the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital's chief psychiatrist had determined that Denible was quite clearly depressed and suffering from a major depressive episode, Despite his previous suicide attempts, Denis Blais is given an unescorted, unsupervised pass to walk around the grounds of the hospital. And on what looks like his first time outdoors alone, he hangs himself, likely before anyone even knew he was missing. Another really important piece of information is looked at in this inquest. People are starting to ask questions about the number of people who have gone missing from the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital. It is discovered that between 2003 and 2005, the number of people going missing from the hospital each year has jumped from 10 to 30. So let's look at the cases of the six people that we know of who are still missing from the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital. In 1966, Philippe Guérin was admitted to this hospital. The family agrees that 27-year-old Philippe was a bit hard to handle. He'd had a rough go of it as a young man, suffering from polio that eventually left him permanently disabled and walking with a severe limp. Let's hear from Philippe's sister-in-law, Dora. So how long was your brother-in-law, Philippe, a patient of the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital? Philip was a patient at the hospital between January 1st, 1964, was discharged for a few months in the spring 1965, and readmitted uh, again, later that summer, 
after setting some few fires. Okay. And was a patient until he disappeared in 66. Okay. Okay. Now, when your family visited him at the hospital, did he seem to you to be getting better or worse? He was, it was a sister and a brother-in-law that would visit him. He was getting more aggressive. And the last time they saw him was a month before he disappeared. Okay. Now, please tell us a bit about a memorable visit that your family made to the hospital one day and something that you noticed about Philip. Well, the last time they visited him, he was very upset. And they noticed that he had some teeth missing. Okay. When questioned about it, Philip said they were the hospital were pulling out his teeth, and he was against his will. So he started a fight with one of the staffs trying to defend himself, and told that told his sister they would never do it to him again. Okay. Did Philip have a, a problem with his teeth? Were they, you know, taking out decaying no, teeth? Not that we know of. Okay. Okay, my goodness. So now please tell us how you came to find out that your brother-in-law had gone missing. Well, on July 17th, uh, his father asked us both to stop on our way home. And when we got to the hospital, the, um, the staff seemed to be very uncooperative when we asked to see him. They sent us to three different departments before they even told us that he had gone home for the weekend. Oh my God. And we knew that wasn't true. We had just come from there. Yeah. Now, and by, and from the papers report, he had been missing a month when that happened. Oh my goodness. My goodness. Now, the hospital huh? said he missed, he went missing on June the 12th. They noticed he was missing at supper time. And we went July 17th. Wow. Wow. Now, if I understand correctly, your brother was, your brother-in-law, sorry, was committed to the hospital. He was taken by his parents and he was admitted. It wasn't by his parents. Okay. It was by the OPP both times okay. with our, his parents' um, approval. Okay. Okay. Now, did the hospital ever mention why, if they really did believe, you know, he had just left on a visit? Uh, that they had let him do so because, you know, people who are committed to psychiatric hospitals, they can't just take off to go for a visit. You know, they usually have no money, no transportation, and they don't have the permission. So did they ever tell you why they allowed him to go on this visit? Not to us, but when his father went a few days after with my brother-in-law, they told his, uh, his dad that he thought he had just left to go for a job. Wow. The, he had polio. He had never worked a day in his life. He couldn't take care of himself. So we knew that couldn't be true. And they gave my father-in-law a suitcase with all his clothes and belongings. Oh, my goodness. Now, so we know that the hospital, it looks like, rather than phoning the police when they found, you know, that he hadn't gone home for a visit, they decided to write a letter saying that Philip had yes. gone missing and they mailed it to the Whittafield Police Force which existed back in the day before the North Bay Police Service. Now, it seems like mm -hmm. an investigation may only have been started at that time. Did the hospital ever explain why, you know, rather than picking up the phone and calling, because a missing person is an urgent situation, did they ever mention why they decided just to send a letter uh, rather than pick up the phone? 
No, but, but my father-in-law saw a Dr. W. Ronley, Ronley or something like that. He was a superintendent at the time. Right. And he just told my father-in-law, he just decided to go home. There was, he thought Philip would go looking for a job, but well, he knew that couldn't happen. Yeah, of course. Of course. Now, in the 55 years since your brother-in-law's disappearance from the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital, have there been any sightings of him or any information at all about what has happened to him? A short time after, uh, somebody with his description was picked up in Falconbridge by a North Bay clergyman. Right. He had the same description. The, guy, the clergyman said the man he picked up had traveled through the continent, even as far as Texas. And that, that wasn't Philip, that was for sure. And he was looking to go to Sacramento in Quebec. That, that was on the other side of Quebec City. So the guy drove him a, a distance and then dropped him off. Okay. But that's all we know. Okay. Is that a location that would mean anything to Philip? Would there be any reason why he would want to go? No. No. Okay. okay. Yeah, we have no relatives around there or even no. Yeah. So we, I, I don't, I don't know, but would your family consider that, you know, a genuine sighting? No. Okay. I, I would agree with you. You know, we, we get a lot of people who look like someone else, but they aren't necessarily that person. And it doesn't sound like they would have met a lot of key indicators, you know, that, no, that, that, to Philip prove they were would fitted. not have been the type to talk to people. He was on the shy side of yeah. shy person. Yes. My goodness. And so, his family never believed he even left the hospital. So, you know, you brought up a very good point there. Has your family ever considered what might have happened to Philip? Do you have any, you know, if you were to guess, any ideas what you think might have happened to him? They thought they were the ones that put him down because he was too aggressive. They got in the fight. They, they I don't know, made him disappear somehow. And the disappearances just continue. In 1976, 31-year-old Norman Welsh is brought in by the OPP. His family, vacationing in the area, is concerned about his behavior. He's brought to the hospital against his will. On the very next day, he is being escorted by staff from one building to the next when it seems he gets away from them and runs into the bush surrounding the hospital, never to be found. In 1982, 18-year-old Terry Zubko is given permission to take a one-hour unescorted walk around the grounds, and he too disappears without a trace. In 2000, 34-year-old Indigenous man Russell Hoffert is a patient of the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital. Russell is reported to have walked away from the hospital wearing just a shirt with rolled-up sleeves and a pair of jeans. It's a cold early April day with a blizzard moving in and temperatures have dropped below minus 20. People in the area of Beaumark Road, a road quite near the hospital, see a man wandering around and call the police. By the time they arrive, it's believed that Russell had gone into the dense tamarack bush on that road. Despite an exhaustive three-day search, he has never been found. In 2001, a 43-year-old Indigenous woman, Dawn Carice, escapes, or elopes as it's called in legal terms, for the 10th and final time from the hospital. 
Despite being an exceptionally high flight risk based on her previous attempts to flee, Dawn is allowed to go unsupervised, it seems, down to the hospital's craft room, where a door exists that is never kept locked during daytime hours. And according to the staff who have reached out to our podcast team, Dawn opens that door, walks out, and disappears. It will be more than 16 hours before police are even called to begin their search. Despite several potential sightings, Dawn has not been located. Here is our interview with Dawn's daughters. And today I'm joined by Dawn Carissa's daughters, Nicole and Sandra. Now, I know that your mom disappeared while a patient of the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital in 2001. Uh, you were both quite young at that time. Nicole, what are some of the things that your mother has missed during the years that she's been missing? Uh, our mother has missed out on so many holidays, special events like birthdays. She missed seeing my brother and sister and I growing up. We started families of our own. Our mother now has eight grandchildren that she's never had a chance to meet. Wow. Sandra, I know that your family has not let a single day go by in the past 19 years without thinking of or looking for your mom. What was it like for you through all those years? Um, for many years, we had absolutely no information. Um, there were no tips coming in and we were feeling like our mother had been forgotten. It seemed that no one was actively looking for her. And we don't know if a lot have been done to look into what might have happened to her and where she could possibly be. We felt pretty hopeless. Now, late last year, we started posting on social media about your mom and featured her story in a podcast episode. Has that made a difference to the situation in any way? Uh, absolutely. That uh, thanks to the research that was done by the Whereabouts Unknown team that they did, we were able to find circumstances that led to her mother's disappearance, despite the fact that she'd gone missing from the hospital at least nine times previously, it doesn't seem that any attempts were made to keep her safe and secure there. Our mother suffers from a serious mental health condition that makes it impossible for her to make decisions on her own. And the hospital staff were well aware of that. Yet she was given an opportunity to escape one final, final time, which we find devastating. My family had trusted the hospital to look after her, and now she's gone. I can completely understand your disappointment and, and your frustration. Now, in the months since we released our podcast episode about your mother, we've had a lot of tips and potential sightings of her that we've forwarded to you and to the police. Can you tell us a bit about those? Your amazing listeners message in about potential sightings of her mother right across Canada. While most of the sightings were ruled out very quickly, two seem like they might be genuine. Um, a man in Ottawa claimed to know where our mother was, and it was determined by police that he was not being truthful. A second tip in Brussels, Ontario, had us very excited as the person in question was the same age as our mother and the physical resemblance and circumstances were striking. Unfortunately, after the investigation by the Ontario Provincial Police in that area, it was determined that the person was not our mother either. How disappointing. Now, what's it like when you get a tip, when somebody reaches out and says, hey, I think I've found your mother? Uh, we definitely go through like a whole range of emotions. No matter how many years pass, we're 
always hopeful thinking this, you know, might be the tip that finally brings her home or maybe gives us some answers. But when the police determine that it isn't her, it's disappointing. We just want to have her back so, so much and or to have some answers of what happened. Sandra and Nicole, how can our listeners help you today? Um, first of all, I would like to thank the tens of thousands of listeners who read the post and listened to the podcast. Many of you sent in prayers and wishes our way, and we are very grateful for those. You also kept an eye out for our mother and sent potential sightings and valuable information into the Whereabouts Unknown team. We would not have the information that we have today, more than we have had at any time in the past 19 years, without your help. We also really want to ask your listeners to keep an eye out for our mother, given that she may have hitched a ride right outside the hospital on Highway 11 North in North Bay, Ontario. She really could be anywhere. Please check out the pictures on the Whereabouts Unknown, Unknown podcast page on Facebook. If you think that you have seen her, or if you know anything at all about her disappearance, please reach out to the podcast team in a private and confidential message. And finally, in 2010, Glenn Wesley, a patient of the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital, is given an off-grounds, unescorted pass to go celebrate his 28th birthday in the city of North Bay. Glenn knows that his parents are on their way to see him, and he has understandably looked forward to their visit. But Glenn Wesley disappears on that day. There have been potential sightings of him in Sudbury, Ottawa, and Toronto, but to date, Glenn Wesley is still counted among the missing. So normally in these podcasts, we all stay pretty neutral, and we allow our listeners to form their own opinions and to make up their own minds, but we're finding it pretty hard to keep silent in regard to this story. We want to start by saying that there is no doubt in our minds that many of the employees of that hospital were kind indecent people who really did their best. And we have listened to you and read your comments and think it likely that many of you felt overworked and frustrated. In mental health services now, even more than then, it seems that the focus is on costs and budgets and not on human lives. And that's something that we need to talk to our politicians about. But we as kind and compassionate people should not tolerate poor treatment of anyone, let alone our most vulnerable. One in five Canadians will experience mental illness. When that mental illness cannot be managed, that person will end up in a hospital or psychiatric facility. And we need to feel absolutely certain that when our family member gets there, they will be treated gently and kindly that they won't be yelled at, sworn at, hit, choked, or even killed. In regard to the disappearance of these six beautiful souls, we have heard the comments that people with psychiatric issues are just more likely to wander off, and we agree. But that is not an acceptable defense to losing them when they have been entrusted to your care. Toddlers and preschoolers are likely to wander off too, but we can imagine the shock and horror we would feel if any daycare center told parents that their beloved child had just disappeared. A senior with dementia is also prone to wandering, but we would never accept that our beloved parent just disappeared from a long-term care facility. Philippe Guérin, Norman Welsh, Terry Zubko, Don Carice, Russell Hoffert, and Glenn Wesley are still missing from this facility. 
And just today we received the news from his family that a man named Eddie Joutot also disappeared from there. Sadly, we expect there may be more. If you know anything about these disappearances or think you have seen any of the missing, please send us a private and confidential message at our podcast page on Facebook or call Crime Stoppers. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please don't delay in seeking care. Call 1-833-456-4566. I'm Ellen White, and you have been listening to Whereabouts Unknown. expressed by some of our guests may not necessarily reflect the views of our podcast team.